Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone. Today's episode is a fascinating conversation I held with Professor Joseph Bowling. Bowling is an assistant professor of history at Portland State University and is the author of The Sober Revolution, Appalachian Wine and the Transformation of France. While we discuss his first book, this episode primarily addresses the politics of energy, economic growth, and climate change in post-war France, which is the subject of his second book, which is still in the process of being written. Storable energy in the form of fossil fuels, nuclear, and green energy is an essential component of virtually every aspect of human life. From the alarm clocks that wake us up, transportation, digital devices, virtually everything about modern life revolves around the accumulation and use of energy. Those nations which have access to energy dominate those that don't. For France, energy has been a particularly pressing problem. First, France did not have the coal reserves that Britain did, and after Germany annexed the coal-rich Alsace-Lorraine, it had to import coal. Later, France had to import natural gas from Algeria, oil from the Middle East, and uranium from the African colonies. France, more than perhaps any other modern nation, has struggled to acquire sources of energy. These struggles have often resulted in violent protest, as exhibited by the recent Gilets Jaunes riots against Macron's taxation of energy usage. But while France has struggled to access energy and drawn much ire from its citizens, it also has an environmentally friendly reputation. Through its use of nuclear power and green tech, it produces less CO2 per capita than nearly every other industrialized country, and the Paris Climate Accord showed that France is one of the world leaders in the fight against climate change. As in many other things, France is a country of contradictions. It is a country with few local resources, but is an energy leader. It has a reputation as the world leader in green energy, yet its capital was racked by protest over supposedly bad energy policies. What follows is a truly fascinating conversation with Dr. Bowling about France and power. But you are, you are just an energetic person, or... I think. Oh yeah, what what keeps you energetic? Is it uh, you... well? I mean, I think the, I mean, I, I'm energetic in certain spheres of life, like right? history, friends, industry for sure, is one of those areas where I'm very energetic. Can get me excited about other things too, like baseball or something like that. But um, France is a very, uh, definitely a passion of mine. No, I think it's it's definitely good to have passion, not just because it bleeds over into other things. But <laughs> I'm of the opinion that in certain professions, you can't just be very good in your area you also have to have a certain lifestyle because i'm also not not to brag but i'm also a writer i'm getting my first novel published uh this coming year congratulations that's great thank you um so what i was gonna 
to be a writer, you can't just be good at writing, but you have to live an interesting life. Do you think Absolutely. it's, it's uh, kind of the same with historians? Yeah, I think so, right? Because we usually, <clears throat> most of the history that we write is personal, right? I mean, I think that there is some level of personal and everything we write so absolutely i mean i think a, a historian i, I was tr trained by historians who uh, friends who told me you can't just go to the archives in france and you know i am an archive rat i love them but you've got to also know the culture you got to know the people uh, and so i think you know if you were just making really efficient trips to france to do research i mean and I, so I, no offense to those who do that because i think there's always limitations like money and time uh but it's best if you can sort of soak up the culture and understand how ordinary french people understand uh, their way of life. So uh, I think it, that inherently makes us more interesting if we're starting to you know, understand a foreign culture better and well, not just their records. Well, I'm glad you're <clears throat> breaking the stereotype of the historian who stays inside all day in the archives because historians, we really should rebrand ourselves. I as think you're being... absolutely right. As being these well-traveled sages. Yeah, no, I, th I think I think that's absolutely right, and I, there is maybe a branding issue with the historical profession more broadly, uh, you know. And I think we need, 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 uh, do need to find ways to make it more exciting, not just for uh, our, our, for us, but also for the people who are listening to us. Uh, and I, that's that's certainly one way to do it is to sort of get to know the culture better. I mean, there's so there's I have senior colleagues who I look up to, you know, who clearly have like. You know, seem to have a, like a sort of glamorous lifestyle in France. I think if, you know, my former mentor, Susanna Barrows, has now passed away, she would go to France and certainly was very much a part of the Parisian sort of uh, scene. Uh, people like John Merriman, who, who owns a, a house in the Limousin, uh, he, he spends a lot of time in France. I think most of his time in France at this point. So there's certainly senior colleagues that I know of who certainly uh, are exciting and doing more than just, even though they have such archival prowess, also have, have other uh, lives. In France. So let's talk just uh, slightly about you then. Yeah. Uh, what uh, makes you a uh, well-traveled, uh, interesting person that, um, because you do seem to bleed this energy. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in an ag agricultural area. I think there's oftentimes stereotypes about peasants <laughs> or about farmers about who, peasants. who, who stick, stay tied to the land. But I was, I was raised by uh, parents who who wanted me to travel when I got to know other parts of the United States. Uh, and when I turned to, became a teenager and uh, graduated from high school, became more interested in Europe, uh, started traveling to France, uh, then had good university professors who also encouraged me to travel. And so it's always been an important part of my life. I don't, there's never a summer that goes by that I don't spend uh, a good part of it in France. Uh, and so, uh, you know, yeah, I think traveling is, is a very important part of the historical uh, experience of writing and sort of learning about learning about the past. Well, fantastic. You know, it might be because you grew up in Iowa. I don't know if it's a, a similar thing, but I, growing up in small town Oregon, I definitely had the, the need to, you know, get out of this place. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, I think there is that, right? If you grew up in New York City, I mean, and that doesn't mean people from New York City aren't well-traveled, but I think there's less of a sort of a impulse necessarily to go beyond because there's so much already in New York City. City. But when you grow up in, in a place, a small town in Iowa or a small town in Oregon, you, you, you certainly uh, become very curious about the outside world. I want to learn a lot more about how other people live and think and, and live their lives. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sitting down with us. All right. So let's get to your work itself. You are working on or have worked on two things that greatly interest me, which is alcohol and power. 
So starting with your first book, The Sober Revolution, Appalachian Wine, and the Transformation of France, where you argue that in the 1950s to 1970s, France experienced an an anti-alcoholism campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about France's war on wine? Yeah, it's a a very good question. Uh, The Sober Revolution looked at how after World War II, in an age of imperial crisis and European integration, the French state set out to transform uh, the French relationship to wine. Uh, I think we often think of France as a country of fine wine uh, and a place with discerning taste, but I would argue that this is actually a stereotype, one that's been cultivated and exported by the wine industry and the French state to serve important economic and cultural interests. Hmm. After World War II, the medical profession grew very concerned about France's high rate of alcoholism. The public health activists noticed that in the, dramatically in the, that in the construction trade, uh, workers drank as much as three liters of wine a day. Uh, they on the job? On the job, oh apparently. Boy. I mean, these are dramatic ta- tales, right? Uh, they also sort of uh, observed uh, that there were more drinking establishments than, than bakeries. Uh, so they were deeply concerned about France's high rate of alcoholism. Uh, at the same time, there's a major shift in paradigms among public health specialists in the middle decades of the 20th centuries. They move away from a late 19th and early 20th century idea of alcoholism being primarily a, a moral problem of the individual. Uh, they see by the middle decades of the 20th century that alcoholism is a problem of political economy. So what does this mean? Uh, doctors blamed alcoholism on wine production and most notably the mass-produced wines found in the Languedoc region of southern France and in Algeria. Uh, they blame the, so they blame alcoholism on its wine production, but also the parliamentary institutions and the economic protections that parliament was granting uh, these wine producers in the Languedoc and Algeria. Remember, this is during the Third Republic. Uh, it's a parliament. Uh, this means that local interests are always uh, sort of, in many cases, get sort of uh, more legitimacy than sort of the central than the the sort of the ideas of the central government. Uh, And at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, wine production grew exponentially to the point that there was major surpluses. And when there's major surpluses, this means that prices fall. Uh, When prices fall, this led to great political unrest. For one example, in 1907, there was 500,000 strong in, in the streets of Montpellier demanding that the government come to the rescue of these wine growers. Uh, By the 1930s, Algeria has become the largest wine exporter in the world. Where are the wines of Algeria going? Almost entirely to France, right? So what to do with all this wine? The major uh, initiative on the part of the government was to sell wine as a beneficial drink, something that was healthful, and that doctors said, well, three liters might be too much, but uh, a liter of wine a day was totally okay. And so uh, citizens happily abided. So after the, after the Second World War, the, the, this shift in thinking away from the sort of the moral problem of the individual to a problem of political economy, this allows doctors to gain traction with a lot of other groups who have a, have a big problem with the political economy of France. And if you, if, for those who are sort of unaware of what's going on in mid-20th century France, there is a big push to shift the political economy, to open up the economy to the world, to make French agriculture and French industry much more competitive. And so there, there's an interest in sort of attacking these economic protections that have been granted to wine growers and to other groups. Okay, so, so a number of different groups jump on board. Uh, technocrats who are trying to intervene in the economy in all kinds of new ways. 
they, they find allies, uh, uh, especially um, in, in part of the wine industry itself. The, the wine industry was undergoing its own transformation in the middle decades of the 20th century. Uh, many of our listeners may be aware of the Appellation d'Origine Cacole regional labeling system, the AOC system, which is now the sort of the major brand of wine in France. It's based on the idea of terroir, that sort of loose the translation is sort of a sense of place. Uh, they were trying to sort of gain market share against all these sort of mass-produced wines in the Languedoc and Algeria. So they actually joined this war on alcoholism, saying, look, people should drink quality wine, not quantity. And what did quality mean? It meant the expensive wines of the AOC system. right? And so there's this sort of this wide sort of coalition that emerges uh, in the context of decolonization and European integration that ultimately will give uh, the AOC system the upper hand uh, on these mass-produced wines from the, El from the Languedoc in Algeria. So there was a war on wine, but a war on a specific specific kind of wine. Uh, and the result was this, uh, this AOC system and its sort of promotion of the idea of terroir. I also argued in the book that sort of this was not just about political economy, but that, that it also did important cultural work. Because the AOC system claimed to sort of promote uh, and protect traditions that went back to the medieval age and even before. And what is the medieval age? This, this was a time when things were more local, less capitalistic, and certainly less imperialistic. So it had a sort of a better public re relations sort of image. <clears throat> and so uh, when in 1962, when Algeria finally achieves independence, this AOC system then really begins to take off in France because the Algerian wines are being imported to a far uh, lesser extent. Uh, and so what this, the cultural work that the AOC system does is sort of, it helps to efface the memory of Algeria. Uh, and it sort of denaturalizes the link that had been sown between uh, Algeria and France for over a century. Remember, for many people uh, in the early part of the 20th century, the claim was that, Fran uh, that Algeria was an integral part of France. So they did cultural work as well. It helped to create the post-colonial France that we know today. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, I, I could spend a whole episode just asking questions on that, but I'll ask um, very quickly... Was Algeria still a major wine producer after that? Absolutely. It takes quite some time for Algeria to figure out how to sort of restructure their, not only their agricultural economy, but also their industrial economy. And they depend heavily on, uh, on maintaining their relationship with France uh, well and you know, all through the post-colonial period up to the present. Uh, so there are going to be continued ties, but through sort of agreements between the two countries, the level of wine coming into France is going to continue to diminish. They find other buyers like the Soviet Union for a while, uh, but ultimately it spells sort of the end of sort of the Algerian uh, wine scene. Although it's not totally gone now, but it's sort of it's certainly not what it once was because of the French because of the French presence. But what's one thing that is interesting about the continued relation in the 1960s is that. One deal that the French made is that, okay, we'll continue to buy your wine as long as you keep the oil flowing. Oh, well, that is a fantastic segue because essentially I wanted to talk to you about power and France's energy situation. Continuing with the talk on alcohol, you have previously done work on how alcohol-based energy actually led to a revelation you had regarding France's energy situation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. So one way that the alcohol lobbies sought to sort of cope with their frequent surplus crises was by promoting uh, an alcohol fuel to be used uh, in automobiles. And so they begin to fund lots of scientific research. 
when I was looking at these archives, I was actually, I started laughing and thought it was totally ridiculous. But then I started to think, wait a minute, people at the time were taking them very, very seriously. And there is a long fought battle between about 1918 uh, and the end of the Fourth Republic around 1957 and 1958, where the alcohol fuel competed with foreign oil. And so I started to think, so, you know, most historians have argued that sort of the you know, the oil transition of the 20th century, this was primarily a demand uh, phenomenon. That's to say the automobile and the invention of the internal combustion engine uh, gave legitimacy to oil. And I, I argue in, in, in an article that is forthcoming that this sort of, this, this link was not inevitable. The oil transition was not inevitable. In fact, during this period between about 1918 uh, and the end of the Fourth Republic, between 1918 and the early 1950s, uh, people were experimenting with different kinds of fuels and different kinds of engine configurations, which and many people complain that actually gasoline based on foreign oil didn't really work that well. It wasn't very efficient. Uh, and so the alcohol fuel actually had a very good chance of being victorious, or at least uh, some mixture of gasoline with this alcohol fuel. So, but, but, but in most historical sort of narratives, oil and even coal before that are seen as progressive forces and sort of anything uh, that competed or any kind of alternative has often been written off, written off as being ridiculous, like I thought, or traditional and therefore about to go away. But in fact, it looked, it looked for a long time as if oil may not have been sort of the thing that it ultimately came to be. So I started asking questions, you know, the fact that, that I saw that alcohol alcohol fuel is sort of ridiculous, I thought that was actually pretty telling. It made me think about how fossil fuel infrastructures come to exist and why we take them for granted. So I think we can conclude then that <laughs> France ran on alcohol or almost did. It almost did, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, there was, a, I argue in this, in this article that it wasn't simply because of price. It wasn't simply because of efficiency. It wasn't simply because of technological innovation that the alcohol fuel was defeated. Uh, it was defeated because of so a social context and political conflict, per per primarily the fact that the government was trying to get farmers, you know, trying to reduce the, 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 the farm population and to deal with, with the surplus problem, which had been sort of a thorn in the side of the government because it was paying out lots of money to these producers to continue to produce something that wasn't needed. Right. There's also a joke in there. You mentioned mixing alcohol and gasoline. I'm not going to go there. But in any case, let's, let's get a I'm not above cheap jokes. That's good. So in addition to this, um, you are currently pursuing and in the process of writing a book on this fascinating topic, which is French society and the adoption and utilization of fossil fuels. As modern historians, I think we understand how important the move from animal and human power to machines was, but could you explain to our listeners just how revolutionary this transformation was? Yeah, the, the, the switch from animal and human power to machines and the switch from organic energy to fossil fuels was totally revolutionary. But I think it's very important to keep in mind that this transition to fossil fuels was far from inevitable, that it was highly contentious, contentious highly contingent, uh, and highly uneven. Right? Not every country adopts fossil fuels to, fuels to the same extent. And I think oftentimes we use an Anglo-American model of devouring coal and oil. Not all countries, like a country like France, for example, was as enthusiastic about fossil fuels. But ultimately, this transformation uh, was uh, impacted every aspect of life. Uh, in the organic energy regime, 
prior to fossil fuels, uh, there were limits to what could be done. So if the, there was major land and labor constraints. So if, if a farmer decided, if, if people decided to use the land for food, it meant that they would have less forest for metallurgy or for uh, you know, warming the house. Right? So there were serious land constraints in, in, in that respect. If, if, if people use the forest for metallurgy and not warming, this could lead to great class conflict. So people were looking for ways to liberate themselves from this kind of organic energy regime. Uh, and this is where stored fossil energy uh, did a great service to those who were looking for major economic change. Uh, to give you a sense for the revolutionary uh, dimension here, uh, mechanization through fossil fuels raised productivity exponentially in agriculture and industry. It provided more food, food and, uh, to fuel animal and human muscle. It fueled steam engines, the internal combustion engine, and all other kinds of machines. So it greatly facilitates mobility. Uh, it improves the standards of living, living exponentially. It lights cities. It warmed houses. It made housework easier to, by electri electrifying modern appliances. So it plays a really central role in the, in the modern capitalist uh, world system. Production go raises uh, is increased by, by about seven, 70 times uh, since the beginning of the Industrial Revo Revolution. And by this measure, measure, the average inhabitant of the planet uh, is today 11 times better off than they were in 1820. In West, Western Europe, they're 18 times better off. So there's been major improvement in the standard of living. This does not obviously mean that the world is equal. Some people have been better off than others. Uh, fossil fuels also were important on a political level in the creation of modern nations uh, and empires. Uh, would France have become France without the you know, steam-powered train? And, and by the, in the course of the 19th century, all the diverse parts of France are integrated. Uh, you can think about the work of Eugene Weber and Peasants and the Frenchmen and the ways in which the, the role of infrastructure and in primarily trains have in sort of bringing the different regions together. All that is thanks to, to, to coal. Uh, the steam-powered ship as well is very important in terms of, of modern empires. Right? Empires could be forged without steam-powered ships, to be clear. Think about uh, sailing ships. And in fact, sailing ships were actually more important at the end of the 19th century than they were at the beginning of the 19th century. So they don't go away, which is an important lesson in energy transitions that the new does not necessarily replace the old. Uh, you find sort of a intensification of the old with the new. Uh, but steam-powered ships do enable sort of the, the British to, do, to be successful in the Opium Wars, 1839 to 1842. It, it certainly facilitates the scramble for Afri Africa and the move inland in, in, uh, on the African continent. Uh, so certainly fossil fuels make modern nation building and empire building much easier. Some scholars have provocatively argued that fossil fuels are linked to modern notions of democracy, and primarily Timothy Mitchell I'm thinking of here. Um, thinking about sort of at, at the end of the 19th century, coal uh, obviously was the most important source of energy in England, and this gave the coal miners lots of power. It allowed them a kind of direct political participation, that if they didn't like the wages that they made or their working conditions, they could stop mining and this would shut down the entire uh, British society. This gave them lots of power. Mitchell argues quite provocatively, it's not convincing to everyone, but he says that the switch from coal to oil in large part was a way to deal with labor unrest. That's to say, oil, where is it found? It's not found in Europe. It's found in the Middle East. It used pipelines instead of actual workers. Uh, and if there is labor unrest in, say, like Syria, you can redirect the oil through a different pipeline. 
And so this deals with the labor question in a big way, the labor problem in a big way. Oil is much more capital intensive, much less labor intensive. And so for Timothy Mitchell, uh, the United States kind of engineered a new kind of democracy in the middle of the 20th century away from coal toward oil as a way uh, not only to empower the United States, but also to deal with communism uh, in places in Western Europe. So it has also been linked uh, to, to democracy. It also, of course, is important cultural and social work in the ways that it transforms space and time. Right? It creates more mobility. People are able to leave their villages. People are able to sort of experience freedom through the car, for example, and these kinds of things. It also does damage. I think this is an important part of the story that needs to be restored, that, it, that there's a progressive narrative, that this is emancipating people, it's creating better uh, living standards, all these things, but it also comes at great ecological costs, and especially in our age of climate change. We are, we're now looking back, and many, many people are looking back to say the origins of the steam engine is, beginning, is the beginnings of our sort of climate change disaster. And so it's important to note that uh, the transition to fossil fuels created winners and losers, and it created new, new opportunities at the same time that it wrought destruction. So, so much there. That was really fantastic. Your expertise is on 20th century, and it's specifically mid-20th century, if I'm correct. That's, very, that's correct, yes. So let's, uh, I have one more question that will do away with the early origins of the Industrial Revolution and get us right to what your expertise is. When the Industrial Revolution is taught in schools, it's inevitably about Britain, but recent scholarship, most notably by Jeff Horn in his book, The Path Not Taken, argues that France didn't fail to industrialize, but only did so more gradually. So while Britain peaked early and then entered a long slump in the latter 19th century, France kept growing. Um, do you agree with this? Yeah, I mean, I, without getting into the specifics of his argument, I do agree with Horn that the French path was different. There's, there's definitely an unfortunate trend in the economic history of modern France of comparing the French path to the Anglo-American path in order to explain what went wrong in France. The historian often asks, why did Great Britain succeed? Why did France fail? In my, in my mind, failure in the French case is, is a strong word because it assumes that some other group is doing things the right way. Uh, it's too normative for my taste. Obviously, Great Britain became very prosperous and very industrial, but this was also the land of great class conflict and the dark satanic mills. And so uh, not everyone would necessarily want to take that path. So I, the way I see it is that the French path wasn't a failure. It was just different. I wouldn't even say that the French path was a special path. It was just a variation on the industrialization theme. What interests me is sort of the energy factor in, in all of this. Uh, and e economic history really went through a boom period in the middle of the 20th century. And this is really where we start to get into my new, my new book, uh, my new book project, is that in the middle of the 20th century, people had become fascinated with economic growth and in part the role of fossil fuels in that economic growth. Uh, both economic historians in England and the United States and in France uh, after 1945, mostly in the 1950s and 1960s, started to look at France's path in the 19th century toward industrialization. And they saw it to be, they really, their interpretation was primarily one of stagnation, right? That France somehow was backward. Why couldn't they keep up with the British? Uh, there was a number of different factors cited there, but one of them was is that France had a resource endowment problem, right? It just didn't have a lot of coal like England. And not only did it not have a lot of coal, but it lacked the kind of entrepreneurial spirit, the lack of innovation to kind of deal with that problem. 
So unfortunately, in the 1950s and 1960s, there's this very like Anglo-American sort of lens through which the, people are understanding uh, France's 19th century industrialization. Um, you know, this is also the age of modernization theory in the United States. So also there's sort of this idea that people need to be more like the United States and that France is grappling with to what extent we should become more American. Um, there was a major shift in thinking among economic historians in the 1970s and 1980s, which I think is rather interesting. After 1973, the sort of economic miracle comes to, a, comes to an end. This is the age of the oil crisis. How, at this time, do economic historians begin to look at 19th century French industrialization? Well, they start to see it in a much better light. For one, they had just experienced the economic miracle. Clearly, French people could do great things in terms of economic growth. But also, with the oil crisis, people started to think differently about energy in the 19th century. Francois Caron and other economic historians started to look at the fuel-saving technologies that France had used in the 19th century to deal with its coal scarcity. And the fact that water power, what had fueled the Industrial Revolution in France, it wasn't coal, right? It was primarily water water power through turbines and wheels, uh, that the, tech, the great textile, the increase in textile output in, in the early 19th century, mid 19th century was the result of water. So there was other sort of pathways that one could take to industrialize. And so this is why I really have trouble with this sort of narrative of sort of fossil fuels being uh, inevitably, you know, the, you know, indispensable anyway to the foundations of, of not only modern France, but the modern world. There was other ways in which people could grow their economies. And fr the French economy grows differently. Uh, and it doesn't really, you know, it, you know, coal certainly by the late 19th century is, is the primary energy source found in France. But even then, people are using uh, water power. Horses are continuing to be used uh, to a great degree. You know, wind power. All these things continue to be very viable uh, in the late 19th century and far uh, from obsolete. And in fact, these technologies, the last wood that would be shipped to Paris was in 1923. So just to give you a sense for how long these, these older organic energies uh, persist. All right, so that's fantastic. I think you've done a good job of showing not just the obstacles that France faced, but also how they adapted with them. And the 20th century appears to be full of situations like that. France was an importer of coal from Germany in the early 20th century, uh, in part because Germany seized Alsace-Lorraine, which had quite a bit of coal and helped fuel their industrial uh, revolution, or at least the latter part of it. Um, not only that, but then France became an importer of natural gas from Algeria and the USSR, and then oil from the Middle East, much of which was part of the empire or a former member of the empire, depending on the time period. Because of this, French fossil fuels could not be divided from geopolitical concerns, can you explain how this affected France? Yes, you're absolutely right that in France, because of its fossil fuel scarcity, there is no way to sort of divorce fossil fuels from geopolitics. That's exactly one reason why there's such a long drawn out fight to stay away from fossil fuels in France. Uh, but nevertheless, some very powerful people in France uh, places it was primarily the the Cordenim, right? These engineers that come out of the Ecole Polytechnique, very prestigious uh, group of engineers and geologists. Uh, have, have an interest in coal and oil, and then ultimately uranium uh, in, in Africa. And so it's very, very difficult uh, to, be, to think about fossil fuels without this sort of geopolitical concern. Um, 
Tony Judd in the 1990s was very skeptical about European integration, in part because after World War II, France, uh, you know, obviously was the spearhead of that movement to integrate Europe. But Judd, what Judd saw was really, a, he sold this in a cynical way, that France really didn't care about integration. They didn't care about, I mean, this, this sort of this discourse of peace and prosperity for the future of Europe was really masking the fact that France needed coal to industrialize right after World War II. And it's true that right after World War II, France is a country that's desperately trying to reconstruct uh, its, its economy. It's definitely trying to modernize and become a great economic power. Uh, and it needs, at that time, it sees that coal is the only way to do that and therefore be because it takes a very big interest in, in the European integration process. Uh, but historians have also shown, going back to the 19th century, uh, France had these great grand designs on, on, on the Ruhr and the Saar and these, the German coal areas as a way to deal with their own economic development. They also had to deal with coal and force, many of which coming from England, right, which was a country that could be an ally but also be a, a big rival. And so they had to sort of you know, France, French policymakers were really having to grapple with this question is how do we industrialize? How do we become internationally competitive if we have to deal with sort of energy insecurity, right? You know, to industrialize and be competitive, you need, most likely you need to have cheap energy. And that is a very difficult situation. France is in a very difficult situation there. So coal uh, leads to new ideas of European integration. Obviously coal, uh, this, or sorry, obviously Obviously, oil uh, uh, after World War II also becomes uh, important. Uh, for, the, for listeners who are unaware of this, that France, sort of, the French Empire didn't yield much oil, not, at least not early on, right? So, coming out of the First World War, uh, there's new ideas about how oil might be used in the future. Uh, this is the time of the end of the Ottoman Empire when the Middle East is being redrawn. Uh, oil plays a big part in all of that, and France is trying to get its get, have an influence in the Middle East. It ultimately will sort of lose to both the, the British and the Americans, but they do nevertheless uh, maintain some pre presence there. Uh, the French Empire becomes more interesting in the mid 1950s, right, when they find big oil supplies in the Sahara in southern Algeria, uh, and in Gabon, right? But what is 1956 to the French state? This is the age of decolonization. Uh, so it's sort of, you know, the contingent events in history can be very interesting. And so uh, there's been lots of interpretations of France's sort of hold on Algeria as being mostly cultural, and we need to maintain France because it's dear to our hearts and it's, it's who we are. I think those certainly resonate and are very important, uh, but there's also the oil factor. Right. And in 1956, they find oil and they think this is going to be able to liberate them, uh, liberate France from the Anglo, what they call the Anglo-American trusts, you know, the seven sisters who dominate the world petroleum economy. And they think that Algeria is going to be this way out and Gabon as well. Can you explain um, what the seven sisters are? These are the seven oil companies that basically dominate the world. They, they, they are integrated industries that sort of do, do you know, prospect, mine, refine the oil, uh, sell it at the price they, they determine. So this is sort of, this isn't a free market by any means. Uh, and they're all, with the exception of the Dutch, they're all British and American. So feeding into fears about the Americanization of France and the world, the French are also like, our oil actually is coming from the United States. Um, I don't know, want to get too wonky and into sort of policy details, but the way that France addresses this early on before finding oil in, in the Sahara is that they create a kind of a quota system uh, and, their own, they, and they demand that oil imported into France has to be refined within France. So, so brute, or, you know, crude oil is cheaper than refined oil. And so one way that they can deal with this uh, oil dependency 
to the United States and to Britain is by making those the seven sisters actually uh, refine their oil within France. And so this is a, a major problem, and France is going to continue uh, to, to do work in the Middle East to find oil. Uh, through its, it creates two big oil companies in the middle of the 20th century to kind of find, you know, to, to race around the world looking for different oil deposits and these kinds of things. Uh, and uh, part of the deal with independence is that France would continue uh, to allow its oil companies, uh, that, that the, the, the newly independent states would allow these French oil companies can, to continue to do work. That would change uh, pretty abruptly uh, in the early 1970s. 1971, Algeria nationalizes its oil. 1973, there's the quadrupling price of oil as a result of OPEC policies. And so um, France's relationship to Africa has been sort of, there has been a strong sort of oil tie, right, and the uh, ideas of France-Afrique, right, is this is the sort of the, the oil is certainly linked there. Uh, they helped uh, a guy named Omar uh, Bongo become the president of, of Gabon in, in 1967, I believe, uh, who was very supportive of the French oil companies working in Gabon. Uh, Bongo famously quipped that uh, Africa without France is a car without a driver. France without Africa is like a car without gas. Um, that's an overstatement. France continued to depend mostly on oil from the Middle East, but the oil that it was finding in, in places like Gabon and Niger, uh, that definitely served, uh, it was political leverage for France. If, if there was a shortage, as there was it during, in 1956 during the Suez crisis, or uh, you know, when there was problems in 1973 and 1970s as the oil prices go up, that serves as sort of, a, you know, a, sort of an outlet or a, a, a stock of oil that they can draw from in a time of crisis. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. So you talk about the actions of policymakers and of the state. I know that your book is still in the process of being made, but do you look at the general public opinion of people and how ideas like decolonization and the environmental movement pushed the, the general populace in certain directions? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think public opinion and the environmental environmental movement, too, is, is are very important factors. I have not looked much at public opinion on oil uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, yet I should. Um, one interesting thing about public opinion in oil, it tends to be pretty quiet, where, where public opinion becomes very uh, uh, you're sort of, you know, against government policy is with, with, with the nuclear program of the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, oil tends to be something the environmental groups certainly take an interest in oil spills and, and sort of the, refine, the pollution of refineries and these kinds of things. But the general populace seems to be uh, less, uh, you know, less 
conflicted about oil, in part because I think it's sort of allowing them to be, you know, during the age when people want material prosperity, uh, this, this, this provides uh, French people with the good life or the way they see the good life to be. Right? And so pub public opinion uh, on oil had not seen a lot of sort of holes on, on, in comparison to, to nuclear energy. Uh, the environmental groups, though, as I've said, they, they certainly uh, were critical. I think it's important to underline that the environmental groups don't just sort of, there's not some great awakening in the 1970s. Those go back to the 19th century. Coal was protested. Oil was protested because of uh, these being, because uh, they polluted the earth. And one thing of ultimately that the nuclear lobby will do in France is to say, look, you know, nuclear, like, you know, generated, you know, electricity generated from nuclear power is, this is actually clean, right? And this isn't sort of, this isn't the same kind of problem that coal and oil are. So that is a perfect jumping point to the next thing that I want to talk about, because it seems like France solved its energy crisis using nuclear energy. Now, in a previous email correspondence before actually setting up this interview, you corrected me on the figures that I had. I had read that as of today, France is the number one country in the world for nuclear power with over 70% of its energy coming from nuclear reactors, whereas by comparison, Ukraine was second at 55% and the United States at 20%. Um, yeah. Do you want to uh, correct me and then tell us how France fell in love with nuclear energy? Yeah, I'll correct you. Yeah. So 75% 70, of electricity is generated from nuclear power, right? Uh, I think it's about 42% of its over, 42% of the energy mix is nuclear, 30%, I believe, is oil. Then it drops off to renewables and, and natural uh, natural gas and, and coal. Oh, so you're including the, like, car power. Right, absolutely. Oh, okay. And the entire energy mix, which includes things that fuel the, the automobile, right? That that's that would be 40. So it's just electricity production for for in, for factories and for uh, for for house for, for the home uh, and these kinds of things. All right, thanks for that clarification. That uh, definitely explains why oil is still so prevalent and Absolutely. so powerful in France. But at the same time, seventy percent, uh, seventy-five percent of electricity—that's pretty enormous. Do you pretty want, enormous. Yeah. Do you want to tell us how that came about? Can I first sort of make a point about oil and then get into the nuclear? Because I think it's one important thing, and this is a narrative French people tell themselves, and one that's been perpetuated by people outside of France, is that somehow, I mean, it goes back to sort of a, a misconception about what energy transitions are. There's a simplistic idea, especially among renewable energy activists today, is that you sort of you can sort of depart from one energy system and sort of build a completely new one, create a rupture, which is never the case. And energy transitions are highly complex. Uh, the old lives within the new. And I think the new so-called nuclear transition of the 1970s is very interesting. Most policymakers uh, in the 70s say the nuclear transition will ultimately uh, you know, be a culminating success for oil because these things were intimately connected. Um, in part, one way that France secure, continued to secure oil in the 1970s was by selling nuclear technology to the Middle East. Right? And so it continues to get pretty good deal from the Middle East in terms of oil because it has all this, this build up, this, these great, this great nuclear technology and then sort of exports it to the Middle East. Can you tell so, us which countries specifically? Uh, Iraq being an important ally, sort of, especially in sort of selling arms and, and nuclear technology. But they're also selling this stuff to Iran, which becomes interesting in the 1980s, right? Where, France, where does France sit in this whole geopolitical mess, right? Um, and so... To, to, your, to your nuclear question, I think sort of what you've done here, you've echoed kind of the way French people 
perceive this, and I think other people too. One, uh, the story goes that France fell in love with nuclear power, uh, and two, that France is a nuclear nation, which I think both are myths. Mm. Um, first, I think a lot of powerful people in France fell in love with nuclear power, uh, and public opinion tended to be rather reserved about it. Polls show that they tended to be rather reserved about it, uh, and that because of the continuing the persistence of oil. I mean, France is an oil country too, right? Thirty percent of, of their energy mix is oil. It's not just a nuclear country. They're they're thinking about energy in a more heterogeneous kind of way, and it's, they're not. There was there was slogans in the seventies, you know, all nuclear. France is going all nuclear, which is far from the truth, right? So I think really. Uh, what we see in France is not so much a love affair, but a sort of a top-down kind of imposition of nuclear energy on two grounds. One, to try to maintain economic growth and employment, and then there was an environmental argument already in the 1970s. We think climate change being something in the 1990s, they weren't using the word climate change, but they were talking about atmospheric pollution in a big way in the 1970s and how nuclear would keep that problem at bay. Uh, that said, Nuclear energy policy in France has been remarkably coherent, uh, and I think this is for uh, several different reasons. One, going back to our fossil fuel discussion, uh, there's a scarcity of fossil fuels. France was looking be before the nuclear project got underway in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, they were already looking for all kinds of alternatives to deal with this fossil fuel scarcity. The question continued to be, how could France grow its economy without fossil fuels? So that fact Combined with France's, I think, fascination with big technological projects, it's important to keep in mind that the nuclear program uh, came on board at the same time they had the idea that the Concorde had become a future way of getting around the world, the Concorde being the supersonic jet, mm. uh, which failed miserably. Yeah. <laughs> um, three, I think it's important, something that oftentimes historians and other scholars sort of don't look much at is, is the role of big corporate interest in sort of building the nuclear reactors. There was a lot of money going into this. And so if a lot of money is being invested by big corporations like Cruz de Loire uh, and EDF, which is the electric electricity utility in France, uh, lots of money is going going into to sort of building the reactors. You know, if you can imagine if all this money is going in, you're sort of locked in. Reactors are supposed to last 40 years. In some cases, they're going to last a lot longer. And people want to get their profit. They may get their money back plus profit, right? And so this means that once you've sort of committed to nuclear, people with a lot of power, economic power, are going to demand that uh, they see the nuclear program through. There's also another factor in creating sort of a remarkably coherent policy around nuclear in France is the fact is the weight of the state apparatus. And I've mentioned already the, the Corps des Mines. We might also include the, the Pont des Chaussées, the Bridges and Roads uh, Engineering Corps. These, it's, it's, in America, it might be very difficult for us to understand just how important, how powerful these technocrats are. They're making most decisions in secret, in closed behind closed doors. Right? There is very little parliamentary debate when it comes to energy policy, because what these technocrats have done over time is to make energy into a technical problem. That can be solved only by technocrats and other kinds of experts, right? So what that does is sort of push, you know, marginalize any kind of political discussion. And so decisions have been made without any kind of democratic uh, input. We could add, also add another factor would be the, the relative political stability of the Fifth Republic. You know, the revolutionary sort of fervor of the 19th century, even the, even the sort of the instability of the early 20th century is not an issue uh, by the 1970s and 1980s, not at least in the same, same kind of way. 
there's sort of a, a, a new trend by the 70s and 80s where, what, you know, the environmental movement, the anti-nuclear movement, these are going to be very, very, very feisty movements in France, but they're, they're basically not going to be able to accomplish much. And I think it's maybe one of the tragedies of the late 20th century is how democracy has been closed off uh, to the people. And that mostly in, in France, but also elsewhere, uh, technocrats and government experts increasingly have taken uh, control of the, the policy arena, especially when it comes to energy. A couple more factors in this sort of coherency and sort of the uh, nuclear policy. One would be that the political parties have been, I, you know, have been pro-nuclear. Right from the from the left to the right, right. The communists have been pro-nuclear, and uh, you know the Gaullist parties were were, were uh, uh, pro-nuclear. Even Macron, our, our new president, has even made he's made claims that sort of they're going to reduce the nuclear share in the energy mix. But it's not clear that that's ultimately what he's going to do because he's also made claims that he's pro-nuclear. Right. It's good for it's good to to combat climate change. And so the political parties, with the exception of the Green Party, have been mostly on board with nuclear energy, which means that sort of the, 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 the political process that does exist is pro-nuclear. And the Green Party has not had the same kind of power in France that we might find in Germany. Um, uh, along with that, the, tr the trade unions have been very pro-nuclear, with the exception of the C CFDT. Uh, in part because the nuclear lobby has made very convincing arguments about uh, how important nuclear is to France's future economic growth and to, uh, and to employment. I don't know, personally I'm convinced, but I think people in France have been convinced by these arguments. In 1981, the French nuclear kilowatt hour costs 45% less uh, in France than it did in Germany. So electricity costs or prices are, are lower in France than they are in even Germany and other places. Uh, and, and in 1983, the CGT, which is one of the powerful trade unions in, in France, said that any break on nuclear constitutes an obstacle to growth. And so this productivist, you know, this productivity mentality continues to persist in France that was born during the, you know, the post-war years in the 1950s and 1960s. One other factor in this coherence uh, could have to do with the fact that where uranium is located. Right. Oil located in the Middle East, which has become increasingly unstable and, and, and at times less friendly uh, to France. Uranium comes from where? From mostly Western countries, some in France, but also Canada uh, and in Africa, in, in Francophone Africa, in places like Gabon and Niger. And as Gabriel Hector showed, uh, South Africa as well. Uh, you know, during, you know, France, through its uranium policy, sort of helped to sort of uphold the sort of the racist kind of segregation that existed in South Africa for a long time. So the stories that oftentimes get lost in nuclear, it's been promoted as this national energy, but it's also, you know, it's being mined in Africa in very unsafe situation for the workers in the mines. I have never been told that I was wrong for 15 minutes straight and so eloquently, but this this is one for the record books. I thank you. I'm going to have to induct you into some kind of hall of fame. Um, so I hate to bring up America, and I hate to especially bring up modern politics, because every time I do, someone says, oh, this isn't history, and oh, you're biased. I do want to ask one question, though, which is you, and we're not going to get too sidetracked by this, but maybe just a, a, if you could weigh in a little bit. You said that France and the domination of the technocrats is something that Americans might not even be able to relate to because it's so closed doors, um, so powerful. Yeah. Um, can you 
compare that a little bit to the American situation, because when I look at, for example, the last Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, yeah, yeah, was pre- previously the head of Exxon Mobil. Absolutely, yeah. And then, of course, there's all the controversies in the Iraq War with Halliburton getting no bid contracts. In my mind, it seems like the American yeah, situation. Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree. The difference may be in degree than kind, I think. Uh, in the United States, certainly, I mean, I think as Timothy Mitchell has shown, there's been sort of a, a sort of rise of technocracy <laughs> in, across the 20th century in most Western industrialized nations. Uh, France has a deep history of that going back to the French Revolution, even, of, but by, by the Fifth Republic that was installed in 1958, they had much more legitimacy and power than does Parliament. Uh, so the situation's not totally different, and there is a revolving door in France, right? These public energy inter- enterprises, something we haven't talked much about, is that very importantly in 1945, all of the energy sector, except with the exception of one of the oil companies, is nationalized, hmm. which means it's owned by the state. And so you get these companies in the state bureaucracy, you find these these engineers and geologists from Accordi Mean and Ponte Chausse, they're moving back and forth, right? So it's very hard to sort of separate corporate policy from state policy okay. everywhere we go. Uh, and so it's, it's just, I, I think it's, it's a question of intensity in it, but it's not something that's certainly not unique to France. Um, let, let me be the historian for a moment and also let me be a Political activist or a citizen for Please. a moment, because I, I actually, I actually, this is open to debate, and historians think differently about these things. But I think history is always political, right? And there's, you know, I think it's important that we try to be as objective as we possibly can. But we, we the, the questions that we ask, the topics that we choose, are certainly rooted in concerns that we have about the present, right? And so it's very hard for us to completely divorce ourselves uh, from our politics or from our contemporary concerns. Right. To be a good historian, we have to be objective, but to be a good citizen, it's the exact opposite. It's, it's our it's, conundrum. It's, it's, it's a tricky, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're absolutely right. So as an historian, I think this is something where I depart from a lot of the historians of nuclear power in France is that I would argue that there tends to be a sort of an anti-nuclear position that they take. Um, that's beside the point whether I'm pro or anti-nuclear. What I, what I, I would defend the technocrats to a certain degree. Do you, would you want a sort of ordinary citizen to have control over a nuclear reactor? <laughs> There's a reason why, why they're there. And I think they're not as cynical and they're not as sort of – they are self-interested and they are after their own power most certainly. But it's more complicated than that. They are negotiating lots of different interests. They aren't blind to environmental concerns. Uh, they're thinking about how they can manage – you know, reconcile economic growth with economic protection. And that, that might, you know, whether that, that there's a tension there, but it's not irreconcilable. Uh, and so there is complexity in the story that needs to be restored. And I think historians, there's some wonderful histories of nuclear power in France, uh, but none of them really, I think, treat that as complexity enough. On the other hand, uh, as a citizen, I'm deeply concerned that experts have taken over energy policy to the degree that they have, and that democratic debate debate needs to be restored. It seems to be, you know, energy is not simply technical. And I think this is something where one of the reasons I came to energy is because there's an energy transition literature that's dominated by engineers and economists who see energy transitions as primarily the result of prices, te- efficiency, and te- technology. And that's just simply not true, right? I mean, I'm thinking of, I mean, these, again, great, great scholars like Vaclav Smil uh, and E.A. Wrigley and others who have done, done history this way. Uh, I, historians are now coming to energy transitions to show that energy transitions are social, they're political, right? And I think we need to restore the social, the political, to have more democratic input because uh, as things currently stand, uh, it's not looking so good for the future.
And so therefore, we need to look about how we got to this place where uh, public sort of opposition has been sidelined. Yeah, that reminds me of something Noam Chomsky said, because he was criticizing capitalism and someone asked him, um, well, capitalism provides all of these different options. And he made the point that, well, you can buy so many different kinds of cars under capitalism, but at the same time, what if I want to use public transportation? We actually have far less than that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't agree with Chomsky on everything, certainly, but I, I, I agree with this, right? That capitalism opens up some, up, up, uh, some possibilities and closes down others. But in my job as a historian is to see how those alternatives have been closed down across the 19th and 20th centuries and restore them to show that political conflict exists in these transitions. So you've talked a bit about the opposition to nuclear power, and I want to ask, how has that transformed, say, in the past 30 years or so with the rise of green energy as an alternative and also in relation to nuclear disasters, most notably Fukushima? Yeah, this is a very good question. I think in some ways it's interesting to put Fukushima in the context of two of the big, two, two big catastrophes of the late 20th century, in 1979, Three Mile Island, and then in 1986 with Chernobyl. Um, uh, how does France, France respond to these, to these crises? Um, after Three Mile Island, this provided a great opportunity because the Socialist Party had sort of gained popularity and was putting a big challenge to Giscard d'Estaing and sort of the, the, the center party in France. And they used nuclear as a way to sort of try to gain a lot of following. And they went over the ecologists and the environmental movement, the Green Party, uh, and these kinds of things. So it created an opportunity for a great public, one of the great public debates in France. And in fact, the Socialists promised, if they get put in power, that in, this in 1981, that they would allow for a great uh, parliamentary debate about the future of energy policy in France. Well, this helped. They they brought into power in part with that support of the Green Party. Uh, they come into power. They have this parliamentary debate. Uh, they 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 shut down one reactor, the building of one reactor in Plogoff in Brittany. But apart from that, they promise moratoriums and all these kinds of things. But it, their nuclear policy persists. Right. So despite some public opinion poll, many public opinion polls showing that the, that the average French person is against nuclear power, uh, they, they persist in part because of the trade unions and the political parties all generally uh, supporting nuclear energy. In, in 1979 as well, you have to think about the context. What else is going on in 1979 is the Iranian crisis, right? And oil prices skyrocket. And so this also gave some legitimacy to nuclear power. Uh, and so uh, despite the socialists coming into power in 1981, and they'd come into power with this sort of promise of, of creating a completely new energy pathway, one that was more decentralized, one that was more de- democratic, uh, very little changes. Mm. 1986, Chernobyl, which has become now very popular as a result of HBO. Uh, uh, Chernobyl, uh, as well, was a great opportunity for a great public debate, but the government very quickly shuts down any possible debate. They say Chernobyl was basically, you know, this this was you know, a bunch of bunch of bad science in the Soviet Union, and that this clearly could not happen in France, where our you know our scientists are brilliant, and so uh, very quickly. They, 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 the, the state bureaucracy and primarily these technocrats take control over the catastrophe. They, they frame the way in which it's being discussed and they, they bring in, they allow a little bit more alternative 
views on science and these kind of things into the sort of the government sort of discussion, but very little again changes. Um, you would think so with those two in mind, with these two cases in mind, where there was an opportunity here for some sort of rethinking about the nuclear pathway, uh, Fukushima became also has become also a, an opportunity, but it also like the first two seems to uh, be going nowhere. In part, it may be explained by the fact that in the late sorry, in the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st century, nuclear kind of had a bit of a renaissance. Why? Well, climate change, right? This had become a big part of international discussions. And France's claim was, look at, look at us. We don't emit as much carbons. The car carbon climate change is essentially a problem of the Anglosphere. And statistics show this, right? My new book, though, the working title currently is The Low Carbon Republic, provocatively, in the sense that not that France didn't, you know, didn't have a productivist mentality and didn't want to you know, grow their economy rapidly, but they had to do this with fossil fuel constraints. And so therefore the French pathway looks kind of good here. Uh, and it gives a strong argument to the, the state you know, energy enterprises and, and, the, and the president of the Republic uh, to really do not do much because look, climate change, uh, we're not the primary culprit here. And so what happens after Fukushima uh, in France is, is uh, in France and elsewhere, right? Internationally, this, this led to some major phase outs of nuclear energy, right? And Germany being one example, other countries as well. But in France, uh, this doesn't go as far. When Francois Hollande was in office, he had made a promise that he was going to reduce the sort of the electricity share of nuclear from 75% to 50% uh, by 2025. Uh, he gets he, he leaves office. Macron come, comes in and he says, "Well, uh, that won't work. It's got to be 2035." And so they keep pushing things off. They keep they keep getting postponed. Uh, only time will tell where things go. Uh, UDF, the major electricity utility, in 2012 stated that a reduction from 75% to 50% in nuclear energy share of electricity production by 2030 would raise electricity prices by 75%, increase greenhouse gas emissions by 50%, and force a substantial increase in fossil fuel imports. Is that argument wrong? Maybe not. And so this is where they're able to kind of maintain a solid argument. I think, but ultimately, I think the answer to the question will depend on whether enough people believe that using nuclear power to curb climate change is worth the risks of a nuclear catastrophe. Uh, I just read in New York Review of Books rather recently, uh, there's been a number of uh, nuclear activists and scholars in the United States that's basically after Fukushima, the argument that nuclear power can be a way to solve the climate change problem is just not. It's not a very convincing argument. And so there's been a backlash to sort of the nuclear solution to our climate climate problem. Hmm. So now that takes us to the modern era and green energy. So even if France isn't necessarily as green as it likes to say that it is, it certainly has this stereotype of being a very green country in part because it has hosted these large climate conferences, most recently being the Paris Climate Accords, which got virtually every country in the world to agree to reduce carbon emissions, uh, with the exception being the United States, which is currently has not left, but is in the process of leaving. What implications does France's position as a leader in green energy have for its global political standing? And also, I suppose I should expand the question out a little bit. How does that impact 
France because you've talked a lot about how France likes to pride itself on certain things that maybe it doesn't actually do. So can you um, possibly enlighten us about the impact of green energy on France and France in the world? Yeah, this is an interesting set of questions. I mean, I, I would say that increasingly supporting green energy, however defined, certainly makes it appear that a country is on the right side of history. And Macron has exploited this opportunity, even, even though Macron seems to be more talk than action. Um, it's true, on the one hand, that Macron has promised to make this planet great again, which um, I don't know if that means through nuclear power or through solar or what. It's not exactly clear. He has pledged to shift France to green energy and has promised to cut carbon emissions by 2050. These are good things, right? But it is still a lot of talk. Who knows how much action? More recently, in 2000, what now? 2018, at the end of 2018, he raised uh, the taxes on gasoline. Um, with the idea that the money would go to renewable infrastructure, energy infrastructure, and these kinds of things. Uh, I think this is a great, that was a great moment uh, in showing that there are winners and losers in trend, energy transitions. And he, he, he was unable to sort of find a way to uh, sort of distribute those more equally. That it does, that for at least the Gilets Jaunes and their movement, uh, Macron uh, was making the burden fall on poor people. Right. And so the question will continue to remain that if uh, we are going to carry out this renewable energy transition, who's going to have to do the, you know, have to pay for it? And it seems difficult to make poor people or even most struggling middle class people uh, make these uh, the primary uh, sort of actors in that story. So he's, he has made promises. And I think obviously when, when you compare that to Donald Trump, that seems like, well, at least it's a promise. Right. It's, it's acknowledging the problem, which is going a lot farther than some people wish. Uh, thank you for that. But I've, I've been rather skeptical of the Paris Climate Accords ever since it happened. And I, not to get provoc too provocative here, but I, it, was, it, it, was a, it was a lot of talk, right? And like, what, what, what are we actually going to do to solve the problem? And I, like I said, this, this was a step in the right direction, but it was a mini step and not, not the kind of step that we ultimately need to take. Wasn't it Honduras that didn't <laughs> sign because it didn't go far enough? I think, it, I think so. Okay. I should know. I don't. It was one and they there signed one, eventually. Yeah. I think maybe Honduras. We could look that up. Yeah. But so Macron, he's spoken, he's grand gestures, right? He, he, he speaks the right kind of language, but it's also true. I think importantly, and some people forgot this, especially you know, as the, the Gilets movement really took off, is that Nicolas Hulot, who was his minister of, of the environment, he resigned. Why? Because he argued that Macron was all talk and not much action. Uh, at one point, Hulot had complained that he was trying to get meetings with Macron, and Macron would not even see him without the oil companies in the room. Wow. Right? And so Hulot was frustrated, and I think that should be a sign. And Hulot is not a – I don't know. I wouldn't call him a, one of the great radical uh, environmentalists. I mean, certainly, certainly an activist and certainly – uh, and certainly wanting to make changes now, uh, but I wouldn't say that he's the most radical on the political spectrum, but even, even for Hulot, uh, Macron's not enough. And, and as I said, he's made promises about reducing the share of nuclear energy and electricity production, but that continues to get postponed. Uh, he, he sort of and has made statements that nuclear energy really is the way to deal with climate change. And sort of, right? so green energy, what does that mean for Macron? It might mean the inclusion uh, of green energy. Uh, in, combating, in combating climate change. So everything that you've said, I just want to say, is absolutely fascinating. Um, it's really blown me away. I had a feeling that this was going to be a good interview, but this has been, uh, dare I say, uh, spectacular.
you talked about how the research in this field has largely been dominated by engineers and economists. And now you are one of the first historians looking into this multiple energy revolution. And I imagine that your methodology is pretty fascinating. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, first, I, I wouldn't take credit for being the first. There's, I'm certainly being inspired by work that is being done currently. Um, I think Timothy Mitchell's work and Andreas Malm, I, I, I don't see myself as a neo-Marxist. I think they would say that, that they are neo-Marxist. I don't, I don't use that kind of lens, but it has provided us with some new ways of thinking about energy. Uh, and Malm's sort of look at the transition from water to coal. Mitchell's look at the transition um, from coal to oil showed that it was never really about prices. It was always a social question. Uh, that, I think, is a very important point and one that has inspired me. Uh, Christopher Jones' work on the 19th century mid-Atlantic, uh, Stephen Gross, who's currently working on the German uh, energy transition uh, you know, in the last third of the, of the 20th century. All these people have inspired me, so I'm certainly not the first. But I do think uh, there is something that might be called a new energy history that is being sort of promoted by a number of historians now to show uh, the social and political uh, context in which these energy transitions occur. Uh, transitions are certainly never just about price and efficiency and technology. They're always social and political and therefore full of human drama, agency, conflict, complexity. Uh, transitions uh, are never even across the world. They occur in some places more than others. They're never ruptures. And I think, I mean, among activists today, I think that's one of the great dangers. I mean, if, if you listen, read the newspapers, usually what people will tell you is that to address climate change and to have a renewable energy transition, you just have to you know, follow the price signals. Uh, it's about technological innovation. But what about the context in which all that is occurring, right? Prices are never just about the market, they're political. Uh, technological innovations, I mean, you can go in many different rec different ways with technology and the, the, the choices that you make will impact prices and, uh, and other dimensions of these transitions. And so I, I think, I'm, to, to put it sort of most simply, I, I'm trying to restore human, human, human drama uh, and agency uh, com complexity and contingency. Uh, so one last question. Generally speaking, I've been asking questions that most interest me when it comes to the adoption of fossil fuels in France. Since you know so much more about the topic, can you tell us something that we haven't covered that fascinated or surprised you during your research? Okay. I don't know if it's fascinating, but it's frustrating. I'm still very much in, in the process of, of doing the research. Uh, what's most frustrating for me at this point has been the, the uh, difficulty of accessing the archives. The nuclear archives are highly secretive and hard to access. I've, I've filled out many derogations, which are these permissions to see the archives, uh, and I'm not getting much uh, response from the French government. And so it's been tricky on uh, from that angle. I'm still waiting to get permission for a lot of stuff. But the other thing I think is just the extent to which the archives are technical and presumptuous of progress. Right, that people truly believed that sort of you know promoting fossil fuels uh, uh, was something that needed to be done in small, tight government circles, and that these were technical problems to be fixed, requiring therefore ever more technocrats taking control of the, of, of the issues. Uh, okay, but there's also a social and political world that got completely silenced in those archives, and trying to restore uh, those alternative pathways, the alternative outcomes that could have been, uh, is one of the big challenges and things that keeps me ticking on a day-to-day -day basis. So I imagine that if you go poking around asking for nuclear secrets, that's a good way to end up on the no-fly list, right? That's, that's exactly right. <laughs>
Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank this has been enlightening. As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.